This week, Comics in Motion has an excellent offer exclusively for our listeners. TKO Comics is revolutionizing the comic industry. They have creator-owned series from heavy hitters like Garth Ennis, Jeff Lemire, Joshua Desart, Roxanne Gay, and many more. If you go to tkopresents.com slash discount slash motion20 and use the code motion20 at checkout, you'll receive a 20% discount exclusively for Comics in Motion listeners. That's tkopresent.com slash discount slash motion20 and use the promo code motion20. Happy reading. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to episode 12 of Mandatory Marvel and DC, the show that likes to take a look back at the biggest and best storylines from the big two of comics. I'm your host, Max Byrne, and I hope you'll continue to join me each and every episode as we relive these classic moments that have stood the test of time and crossed over into popular culture. Now, for episode 12, I've got an extremely special guest lined up. I've managed to get the man that's blazing a trail across the world of popular culture and comic book fandom. It's somebody I'm very proud to be a writer for and equally proud to call a friend. It's none other than the editor-in-chief of GetYourComicCon.co.uk and the co-host of the amazing Get Your Comic Con podcast. Yes, of course. It's Shrewsbury's favourite son, now residing in London town. <laughs> Love <laughs> it's it. Mr. Neil Vag. Neil, how are you, sir? I am very well, thank you. That's the most amazing intro I think I've I've, I've, well, I think it's probably the first intro I've ever had, but it's <laughs> by far the best intro I've ever had. Thank you. I do pride myself on my intros, actually. So it's kind of the highlight of my show. The first 30 seconds <laughs> is always, you know, hot stuff. And then over the course of the subsequent hour, the quality diminishes. But we always start off with a, <laughs> with a bang on this show. So uh, great. Um, but yeah, great to have you on, finally. We've sort of uh, danced, to danced be around here. it. for Yes, great to have you here because we sort of tried to uh, arrange it for uh, many a week and i'm glad we've finally done it so um yeah how the devil are you i am very well thank you it has been a bit of a weird and wonderful day today i have to say today is one of the days where i actually go into the office for work which i realize is a rarity in this day and age <laughs> yeah uh, so i've had a completely random full day of work including getting my flu jab um and <laughs> then uh yeah we had some super secret stuff going on with warner brothers that i can't really tell you about right now uh and now here i am with you yes well Obviously, our listeners cannot know, but I know what you've uh, been up to, One Brothers, and it is very exciting news for Get Your Comic Con. Yeah. And speaking of Get Your Comic Con, um, obviously, as I said at the brief intro there, it's, uh, I you know, do the odd uh, comic book review for you guys. Um, you certainly do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, why don't we explain to the, the listeners, the uninitiated, I can't imagine there's many left out there, but there will be some, <laughs> um, what Get Your Comic Con is all about and, you know, where did the initial genesis of the idea come from? Because I'm dying to know that one as well. Okay, so this one goes back a little while and I can always, I always kind of do, uh, I just randomly stock answer, always say six years and I think it's probably more like seven though. Right. Uh, so uh, for anybody that's listened to our podcast, um, you will know that it's hosted by myself and my very own boy wonder martin yep so we got married in 2012 uh yep. november 2012 and um we decided that for our honeymoon we wanted to go to san diego obviously and why else would you go to san diego but for san diego comic-con absolutely 
So uh, we didn't do like a whole wedding list or gifts or stuff like that. We just said if anybody wanted to give us anything, then uh, donations towards our honeymoon would be greatly appreciated. So completely uninitiated to the idea of San Diego Comic-Con, neither of us ever having been before. Uh, Book, wonderful holiday to San Diego, you know, on on sale before the tickets to San Diego Comic-Con go on sale (laughs) and then fail to get tickets to San Diego Comic-Con. So go out there, we're out there for Comic-Con. As it actually turns out, it doesn't really matter if you don't have tickets because you can still soak up pretty much everything anyway. And so we went out, had this amazing holiday out there, experienced as much as we could, but the closest we got to going into the convention center was looking through the door from the outside and kind of (laughs) pouring away at the crowds inside, being a bit like, we're so close, but we just can't get in. Yeah. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know, San Diego Comic-Con always happens in July. It's normally either just before my birthday or I'm pretty sure one year it was actually on my birthday, which was amazing. But that particular year, it was just before my birthday. So we we went out, had an amazing holiday. We're a bit kind of sore about the fact that we didn't get to go in. And then uh, we were with some we were with some friends of mine from uni uh, celebrating my birthday after we got back. And we were in... <laughs> We were, so there's this place down on the the South Bank in London called the Wonderground, which is just like a, a summer outdoor festival. Yeah, it's got like a random fairground, Circus of Horrors. Uh, there's like a vaudeville kind of theatre, and then just these weird little cool spaces for just sitting out in the nice summer evenings and having a drink. So we were sitting in a bumper car um, on on the South Bank, as you do, uh, in the middle of July. Yeah. And talking about the fact that we hadn't managed to get in San Diego Comic Con, but that we w- we wanted to, you know, give it another shot at some point. Yeah. And <laughs> one of my friends just sort of said, "I don't understand. You know everything about comic books and film. Why do you not just start writing about it online and become a famous journalist <laughs> and get a press pass?" And then I think at the time we all just laughed and went, "Yeah, yeah, wouldn't that be amazing?" And then we'll say there was a sort of a haze of alcohol after that. <laughs> And I wake up the next morning and I own several social media accounts and a web address. <laughs> and suddenly it's like, okay, uh, possibly should probably do something with this. Yeah. So kind of for the first year, it was, a, it was just a Tumblr blog actually. And did reviews of a few things and didn't take it particularly seriously at all. Don't think I even did all that much with the social media, to be honest. And uh, ended up... At the at the end of say the first year, probably I think it must have been, kind of thinking, what am I? Why I don't really know why I'm doing this, other than the fact that it was a really weird idea that we had after one too many drinks. Yeah. So I kind of drifted away from it for a little while, maybe sort of three four months, where I just didn't touch it or do anything with it. And then I don't I couldn't actually tell you now what it was that brought me back to it, but something did. And from that point onwards, I kind of took it off Tumblr, went to WordPress, which felt like somewhere where I could craft a bit more of a website around it rather than just a generic sort of template. And then just really went hell for leather with it. Not really on purpose, but just wanting to talk about the stuff that I enjoy. Yeah. And then noticed that people were reading and then kind of started doing the social media bit a bit more. And the Twitter thing happened very, very slowly, but did pick up. But the Instagram kind of side of it, which is where we've got the biggest following in terms of social media, just suddenly took off like pretty quickly. And suddenly it was like, okay, actually, this is kind of cool. Like people are actually reading and people are interacting. 
and then got myself into a routine. So I, outside of COVID times, I, um, I work an eight to four job. So I tend to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I leave the house at seven. So I tend to spend five till seven prepping stories for the day and then toddle off to work and just do the social media stuff as I'm going to do. And it's just snowballed from there, to be honest. And then that's when after, after another kind of three years or so, that's when invites started coming in from PR companies to go see films or to read books and stuff like that, that weren't out yet. And that's again, from there, that's where I started to meet people that have now come on board. So, you know, we've got you that does comic book reviews, got my friend Mark that I work with, who does some comic book reviewing for us as well. And then roped in Martin to do the podcast, which we started about 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. And we've also got uh, James, uh, Sai and, Dave, who do news stories for us, who've all come on board as well. So suddenly it's like this team of seven or eight people yeah. and it's not just me anymore. And it's this, it's this thing, it's this recognizable brand now, which yeah. is just crazy to be honest. No, it's amazing to see, you know, how, how big it's got, you know, and you find, I, you know, I find myself seeing enviously seeing footage of you guys at, you know, with the sort of press benefits at New York Comic Con last year and places like that. Yeah, it's, it's nuts and you'd kind of it's interesting because i've met so many different people uh through through doing this who have different ways of coming at the same thing yeah. so people who've got websites or people who are more twitter people who are more instagram people who podcast people who youtube and it's just a, it's just mad when you kind of all sit down and look at each other and think well we've got completely normal mundane day jobs mm. and yet just through having a passion for something and sharing that passion we're now like going to the premiere of joker which i went to last year and you know meeting joaquin phoenix and mm. or i walked the red carpet at the the london premiere of star trek picard in in leicester square yeah. and i walked I walked, well, it's not, it wasn't a red carpet, it was a white carpet. I walked up the white carpet with Jerry Ryan next to me. Madness. Of course, she was the other side of a ban, uh, like a, a barrier, and I wasn't allowed to talk to her. But, you know, <laughs> I walked in parallel with her and was like, this is just nuts. Yeah. I'm just me. <laughs> why am I, why did someone think that it was worthwhile inviting me to this? But yeah, imposter syndrome is real. Yeah. Oh, it's superb. I mean, you know, it's, the possibilities are endless, aren't they? Yeah, they are. It's just, it's, yeah, it's so cool. I yeah. pinch myself every day when something new comes in that is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, good luck with the journey from this point onwards. And um, I can only see bigger and better things in the future. It's fantastic. So uh, I take my hat off to you and Martin Thanks. for what you've, you know, what you've accomplished and what you put together. The podcast as well. Obviously, at the end of the show, we'll do all the plugs and, you know, you let everyone know yeah. where to find everything. And <laughs> I'll give you a, a nice spot at the end of the show. But yeah, the podcast that <laughs> you and Martin do on a, it's a fortnightly one these days, isn't it? Yeah, so we try and do fortnightly. I, we uh, we have the little generic intro that we do, and I've I've kind of tailored that to say we release podcasts fortnightly ish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because the with kind of the way things are these days, with there being less films kind of out at the moment and yeah. content being a little bit more sparse than it is normally, it's sometimes difficult to keep up the regular schedule. But we try our best. Yeah, I'm a victim of that myself on this show. I mean, I, I you know, I started off with the intention of it being a weekly show, and now it's become sort of a fortnightly show yeah. slash 
free weekly show, whatever the correct terminology is. So, uh, think you know, it comes and it goes, but um, hopefully I'll uh, sharpen my focus a I... bit more. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know what I think is really important? I, uh, I am pr- I'm probably my toughest cricket, cr- cricket critic, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. And if, I, if there's something that I feel like I should be doing and I don't do it for whatever reason, could be a perfectly valid reason, mm. I am really hard on myself about it. So the fact that I... I think of the podcast as fortnightly-ish. Um, if we don't do something every fortnight, then that kind of that fortnight spot where I feel like we should be doing it, I will be pretty tough on myself about the fact that we've not, even if it's, there's not really anything to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So I've had to try and reconcile the fact that actually, if there isn't really anything worthwhile talking about, there's not really much point in trying to come up with something because it will either just sound really forced or it just won't work. Yeah, there's got to be a subject worth filling a show with, hasn't there, really? Yeah, definitely. So I think just just do what feels right when it comes to, you know, what you're doing rather than try and force it. And you'll find that people will, they'll engage with it more when they know that it's coming from the right place rather than coming from a place of, I've got a schedule that I need to try and meet to, which I guess is one of the benefits of the fact that we don't work for a major publisher that, you know, we can, we can write our own rules about what we do rather than be beholden to someone else's ideas. Yeah, exactly. Your own boss. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone's listening to this and taking notes, you know, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. I think is the, uh, the moral of the story there. And um, do, do do, do what feels right. Well, speaking of doing what feels right, as you know, this show is about the guest and their choice of a classic Marvel or DC big hitting book or storyline from yesteryear or even from last week. It doesn't really matter (laughs) Uh, as long as it's something that uh, people can enjoy and get the teeth into. Um, And obviously, like we said, it's the guest choice of what we discuss as our sort of topic of conversation. So, Neil, what have you chosen for the listeners out there this time? Okay, this is this has been a tough choice, and this is why it's taken till episode twelve for me to appear on this podcast <laughs> because there's a lot that I would like to talk about. Yeah. Uh, so, right up until the very last minute, we were going to be talking about uh, Batman Last Night on Earth. Yes, until I happened to mention to you that I had just read Brad Meltzer's identity crisis for the first time the other day and so we we are going to be covering identity crisis we are indeed um and what a great um poll you've come up with there i mean this for me i don't want to reveal my hand too early i suppose um but you know i may as well for me this is one of the the best uh, dc uh, books that there's been in recent memory to be honest with you this is right up with there with one of my all-time favourites. I think it's a brilliant read, and I think you know the the shocking elements and the twists in the story. Even on yeah. you know repeated reading, they still they still carry some weight, even though you know the shock value isn't there from obviously you know reading it again. I still yeah. think it's what it's one you can go back to because there's so much minutia in there and so much detail. So I'm very glad that you pulled this one out actually because it gave me the excuse to go back and read it myself this week. So thank you for that. I'm very I'm very grateful that you have because it's um, an absolute treat. I think for sure. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I can't believe I had not read it before. To be honest. Yeah. Well, now you have. So this is what we're all about. Um, so this one, Identity Crisis, was a seven-parter. Uh, it was released between August 20, uh, 2004 and Feb 2005. Uh, as you say, written by Brad Meltzer, um, art by Rags Morales and uh, ink work by Michael Bear. And 
obviously we don't like to go full on spoilers on this show, but you know, I always say to to people who are listening, you know, be, be, be warned, you know, we may give away <laughs> certain plot points. So if you, if you're very precious about that kind of thing, then perhaps pause this, dig out a copy, read it. Cause I highly recommend you do, and then come back and listen. But we do obviously discuss the finer points of what's going on. So in a nutshell, without sort of going on and on and regurgitating the plot, this one is essentially a murder mystery story set within the DC universe. Um, it involves the death, the murder, should I say, of Sue Dibney, wife of Ralph Dibney, aka the elongated man. And then it deals with them, the basically the entire Justice League and JSA and sort of every hero in the DC universe sort of banding together to find out who did it and why and bring them to justice. And we see throughout the course of the seven issues, a lot of twists at one point you're directed to think the guilty party is such a person. And then you find out, no, it isn't. And then you sent another direction. And then finally at the end, the killer is revealed and, um, you kind of don't see it coming. Or did you? I must say, actually, did you? I know it was obviously the benefit of hindsight, but when you read it for the first time, surely you, without revealing right now, surely you couldn't have seen who the killer was at, until the big moment. No, I didn't. I did not see it whatsoever. No. I can't even tell you now who I thought that it actually was. Mm. I think I pretty much fell for every piece of misdirection mm. all the way through. Yeah. Well, that's the genius of the writing, isn't it? By Brad Meltzer, the way he does it. Yeah. He, he takes you down the garden path and leads you to think that, you know, but for instance, the first sort of, you know, prime candidate is Dr. Light for obvious reasons, which we'll get to in a minute. And you sort of led to think that it is him. He's got the motive and he's, you know, evil enough to do such a thing. But then you completely sort of pulled away from that and led up another alley and then led up another and then... You know, like we said, the, the final one is, is one you don't see coming because it's someone who you think in a million years could never do such a thing. But then I think it's quite clever because when you find out who it was and then you sort of understand the reasons for doing it, whilst it's a hideous act of abject insanity, you can kind of understand in a twisted way the motivation, can't you? Yeah, you can. It's, um, yeah. Not only was it not the person I expected, but it was not at all the reason why I expected them to do what they did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So as I say, this is about the murder of Sue Dibney, um, wife of Ralph Dibney, the elongated man who, you know, more casual fans might know from The Flash, although I guess based on Hartley Sawyer's yeah. Twitter, Twitter conduct, we won't be seeing him again on uh, The Flash in the, in the very near future, at least. I think the rumour is that they're going to have him back for an episode, but not Hartley mm. Sawyer. So it'll be the character played by somebody else, benefit of his not-quite-plastic-man powers, yeah. and that they will use that to write him out. Uh, but they're going to keep Sue Dibney, because she's now a regular, I think. Right. That's interesting to have Sue without Ralph, but I suppose that's the yeah. consequences having, of... Having now read this, I did then think, ah, were they laying the groundwork that eventually they might have tried to do an identity crisis? Um, mm. Yeah, identity crisis. Oh, for a minute there, I forgot which crisis we were talking about. I was about to say infinity crisis. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of crises floating around in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, DC do love a crisis situation, which is quite weird, actually, because generally the sort of the, the classic crisis of the DC university, crisis on infinite earths, in, infinite crisis, final crisis... They all involve these earth, well, not even earth shattering, universe reality yeah. shattering events and threats that are this sort of, 
huge existential threat to reality as we know it. Whereas this crisis, identity crisis, it's such a, a much more intimate smaller scale story isn't it yet what's yeah. so clever is it shatters across the entire landscape of the dc universe doesn't it i think that's why it has so much impact because yeah. it seems like a small not to play down sue dibney's character but it seems mm. like such a small thing mm. but actually it really does reverberate on everyone yeah oh it does that's the thing it's it's you know although it's the killing of a spouse of a character who isn't an A-list character in most people's uh, imaginations. It literally sends a shockwave through the entire roster, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's yeah. one of those things that you can't even quantify, you know, how much of an impact it has. It's, it's genius writing, I think. It's so cleverly it done. It is, yeah. yeah. And I now feel like I understand Heroes in Crisis better because I feel like mm. Heroes in Crisis has a lot of inspiration kind of from an emotional standpoint from this story as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think um, you mentioned it to me as well. What's so good about this one is, is that your main, you know, your typical DC Trinity, your Superman, your Batman, your Wonder Woman, they're not the prime time players in this story. They're very much in it all the way through, but they're on the periphery of events, aren't they? It doesn't really focus on, on them too much, which is quite refreshing. It is definitely very refreshing. And I think, some of the cover artwork kind of takes you away, makes you think that they will be in it because you've got that, mm. like the collected edition cover, you've got the costumes kind of hanging there. Yes. Uh, so like I'm looking at it right now and you've got Batman's cowl just there with the cape drooping down next to Flash's suit, but you've got Wonder Woman's lasso and you've got Superman's cape. And then the the cover of the first issue still has the Trinity front and center. Yeah. So I, you know, going into it, I expected that they would be a bigger part of the story than they were. Yeah, but it was well, really nice to have something focused elsewhere. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. It gives other characters the chance to be front and center of a, a hugely epic storyline. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I like about this one as well is um, it harkens back to a, well, without boring the listeners, it harkens back to a, a JLA story from the eighties, which I had as a you know a young boy. I used to get sort of DC and Marvel comics that my mum used to sort of pick up at. I guess flea markets or antique fairs, you know, like these sort of bargain, um, bargain bucket kind of things. And I used to devour them at home when I was a, like a primary school kid in the eighties. And yeah, the story of the secret society of supervillains where they switched bodies with the justice league in the past. And then they used, that was the first time that they used Zatanna's powers to wipe the villains minds from of the event, because obviously inhabiting the bodies of the heroes meant that they got to find out, who they really were and obviously that would compromise everything uh, okay I, yeah i actually had that that run it wasn't just a story that they that Meltzer came up with for the purpose of this book it was it's an actual um, oh wow a few issue arc from the 80s with that exact storyline so when the first time i read this which was probably about 10 years ago maybe i would say 10 or 12 years ago i actually looked at it and went my god that's this that's the book i well not the book that was those are the issues i had when i was like eight nine maybe something like that um that's and, amazing. Were, yeah it's great i mean they were published i think early 80s so obviously I would, early 80s i was like a, a baby or a top back then but you know as a sort of older child i had them so it's a really nice little touch there that a, a storyline that's not even that revered as a 
you know, when people go, oh, you, all your classic Justice League big hitting storylines from down the years, they don't really tend to pull that one out of the bag. But the fact that he managed to use something that happened 20, when was this published? Oh, four, two, five. So like 23, 24 years prior to this book being published and use that as the basis for telling this story and explaining the motivations of that sort of six or seven heroes for doing the things they've done. It's really quite clever, I think. I think it's a really nice touch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you, do you still have those? I wish. Um, no, I kind of, when I, when I was a kid and I kind of got to my sort of early teens, shall we say, my interest kind of waned for a, a little bit. And same yeah. with my sort of toy, childhood toys, which every every day I, I weep thinking about what I got rid of when I got to like 12 or 13 for for nothing more than pocket money you know I think my mum just sold them to one of her friends who had a younger son yeah. and I was like yeah fine yeah I'll, I'll have 10 pounds please you know because back then that was, exactly. that was a lot of money to me back then I felt like a rich man so and yeah. you know we're talking Star Wars toys we're talking uh, Kenner DC superpowers toys Marvel secret oh, wars wow. toys you know stuff that goes I mean don't get me wrong it's not like I could take them on um you know toy hunter and get top dollar because they weren't kept pristine they were dog-eared and probably the dog had chewed the feet off some of them and things like that but <laughs> you know just to just to physically have them now would have been quite something I, I wish i'd kept on to my childhood toys but sadly i'm not one of those uh, people who likes to hoard things but now i'm you know as a dare i say it 40 year old man now i'm trying to sort of re- reacquire my childhood you know yeah um, in fact, as I was oh, yeah. re- reading this book, my missus said, uh, missus was um, looking at me reading this book ahead of tonight and she looked at it, identity crisis, and she accused me of having a midlife crisis. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite apt, well, I suppose. It is, but you know, it's well, it's harsh, but fair, I suppose. Yeah, I still have some of my, uh, some of my first ever comics actually, right. uh, but the, my, my actual, and none of them are in good condition because they've been read to, to death. Yeah. Um, but my actual first ever issue of batman i have no idea what has happened to it and really really frustratingly i cannot for the life of me find what story it was so it was it was one of those british comics so not like the same size as Mm. americans it was it was a bigger book and it obviously brought a few different random stories together and one of them was a was one of the very very early batman stories and this one i have actually managed to find and it's it's that classic one where he ends up uh, trying to save a damsel in distress from like a, a weird kind of ghoulish castle. It's quite a spooky sort of mm. almost supernatural Batman story. Yeah. But the, the kind of the main story that was in the book was like a Batman versus Dracula. And it's not, whenever I try and find this story of Batman taking on Dracula, I always get like Batman red rain and stuff like that, where it kind of mixes up the mythology. I cannot for the life of me, find what story it was <laughs> which i find very frustrating as somebody that prides themselves on knowing a bit about comics yeah. but it was like a story where batman took on dracula and i can't they, in, batman may have even come to london or something completely random like that but it was actually it was a proper it wasn't like some weird metahuman that had vampire powers it was actually batman versus dracula right wow it must have I, been so i think i got that when i was like six or seven so it yeah. would have been 91 92 yeah. maybe yeah. Uh, i don't know where i don't even know when it was published it might have been from around that time it might have been decades old by that point yeah 
we can find out. Um, my uh, learned colleague Steve Ray, who does a, a show on this network, oh, he, do you know what? I show. thought to ask him. He'll know. Steve, what Steve doesn't know about Batman isn't worth knowing. I tell you, uh, literally any trivia question about Batman you can come up with, no matter how obscure, he'll know the answer, or will have the answer for you within a matter of seconds. <laughs> honestly, it, that honestly, Steve's knowledge. If you're listening, Steve, hi, is second to none. So we'll find that out for you. We'll get you that answer. <laughs> as soon as you finish recording here, I'll message him, and uh, we'll, we'll get you that answer. We'll probably know in about ten minutes. Exactly. We shall unite you with your uh, missing story in one way or another. And hopefully, he'll probably, he'll probably, I tell you, he'll know what it is and he'll know which sort of collected edition has that within it, you know, so you can buy it as like a, you know, a trade or something like that. So I'm sure, I'm sure it's out there somewhere in some way, shape or form. And uh, if it isn't, he'll know that too. So uh, either way, we'll get you an answer on that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He'll solve um, a lifelong mystery. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Well, speaking of mysteries, this is what the book's about. Yeah. Um, before we sort of dive into the mystery and two or three sort of key moments from the story, one of the most touching things I think about this, and people tend to focus on the darker elements of this book and the sort of the violence and the, the sexual assault elements of it, which we'll get to, and some of the bits in it that are really sort of close to the bone. But one of the most yes, sort of... Absolutely. It's, yeah. It was, I, just, I can't get over how completely unexpected the whole story was from every angle. I just I I didn't go into it with any preconceived ideas about what it was going to be but it was in no way anything that I think I could have ever expected it to have been or even tried to guess at what it was yeah absolutely yeah it's some some dark stuff and if anyone is thinking of reading this um if you've got children at home, please do not uh, let any child yeah. have read this. But this is adults only fair, this book, I'm afraid. Um, Absolutely, definitely. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but yeah, one of the things I was, I was going to say is that the most touching element of this book, before we delve into the darker elements, is the Ralph Dibney explaining his sort of love story with Sue and this wonderful story of how they met and how the fact that, you know, she's been in all the Justice League meetings surrounded by these sort of jacked up Adonises like Superman and Batman and Aquaman and Hawkman, yet she only ever had eyes for Ralph, which is, you know, just shows the bond that they have. And that serves really well, doesn't it? Because as well as making you think, well, you know, what a perfect couple they were, it jabs you in the heart even more when what happens to her happens to her, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, And I have to admit, I'm only... uh, and he had casual awareness of Sue and Ralph. And most of that is actually from watching the flash. I can't think of any other comic books where I've come across them. So it was, it was interesting how much I reacted to the, to the death just Mm. based on, as you said, that, that romantic story that he retells. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's, it's quite touching. And then obviously a, a untimely demise is certainly more keenly felt because of it. And that wonderful splash page that we get, a double splash page of the funeral um, entourage when they're wheeling, uh, wheeling, when they're carrying her coffin into the church there. And you see it is literally a who's who of the DC universe in the congregation, is it? Oh, well, heroes, yeah. obviously not the villainous side of the DC universe. But it's literally, you know, the, the, the rows of them go back almost to the very back of the... The, the church there and it's literally everyone who you can think of is there in full costume as well it's it's a really striking scene isn't it yeah i'm looking at it now actually and just trying to see who i kind of 
hadn't spotted before. Yeah. Um, I hadn't really noticed all the Titans there together. Yeah, yeah. You get Stargirl. Stargirl. Yeah, which is obviously a hot character right now. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's a great shot and, you know, just... Oh, Commissioner Gordon's even there as well, by the yeah. look of it. Yeah, it's, it's good. It, it, there's a lot of detail in there. That you, again, throughout this book, there's a lot of detail in and And the sheer amount of characters that Meltzer and Morales bring into this book, I mean, some of them are literally just sort of walk-on players, aren't they? You know, glorified cameo uh, positions. But the amount of value for money in terms of characters you get in this book is, uh, is staggering, really. Again, like we said, for a story that isn't a universe spanning all hands to the pump crisis story to get everyone in is uh, is great isn't it yeah it is it's it, it yeah I, I, I can't say it any better than you did it's just it just shows how much a small act like this yeah depending on the person or the people that are involved with it can just have such far-reaching consequences across this whole cast of characters yeah it is. It's amazing. And of course, this is the sort of catalyst for the, the ripple effect for the sort of um, peeling back of the layers of sort of the misdeeds of the past. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And speaking of misdeeds of the past, um, I'm not sure there's ever been, a, well, certainly in many other sort of non-Marvel and DC comics there has been, because you can sort of go further to the line or even cross the line but with sort of marvel mainstream marvel and dc not um you know black label titles or yeah or stuff like that you tend not to but i mean has there ever been a more despicable piece of work depicted as a villain than dr light is in this book i don't i'm not quite sure there is to be honest no i again so this character um is a, another one that i've not come across all that much in in what i've read because it's not somebody who turns up in bat books which is kind of my mm. my main thing mm. so again my knowledge comes from appearing in the in the shows most recently having been in titans yes. and yeah he, he wasn't a particularly nice character in that but geez okay this was this guy this is not and this is not a nice guy uh no to say the least he is a complete <laughs> piece of shit basically i mean just like a a rabid dog isn't he and and you know the you know what he does to Sue in the in the flashback uh, sequences when you know, it's when the, horrific. It is awful, isn't it? But at the same time, they do manage not to explicitly depict his act, do they? They sort of show they show the aftermath of it rather than the act itself, which is just sort of straddles the right side of tastefulness, doesn't it? Yeah, all right, and that's something that I think DC do well because if you think about something like the Killing Joke, mm. that again went really, really close to showing you some very, very dark stuff. Yes, but knows when to when to sidestep it and show it from a, a more tasteful and respectful mm. angle to the characters and for the for the reader because you don't, you know, you come to comics for understanding that you're probably going to get some some dark subject matter but it's a it's a form of escapism so you don't necessarily want to see some of the really tough stuff like that yeah no it's not what necessarily what you'd expect to find in um in a you know quote-unquote superhero book but um yeah, yeah it is it even is then, some... I'm, again i'm looking at the pages now and it is even just the the dialogue gives me chills when there's the panel where he's kind of holding her down and the the yes. panel is just her hands with his hand over the top and she's kind of just saying what are you doing no please don't please please yeah. it's uh, it's yeah it's yeah 
Yeah, not nice. It's, it isn't, is it? It's um, it's pretty harrowing stuff, really. Um, yeah. But you know, obviously, we that serves us to sort of serve Doctor Light up as the sort of prime suspect in the murder of Sue mm. because First. after yes, um, because we discover that after he did what he did, he was obviously stopped by the Justice League who burst onto the scene immediately, sort of post act and they decide that it would serve the greater good um, if they could obviously sort of alter Dr. Light for um, for want of a better word, because the sort of thing about Ralph is he's not a alter alter ego mask wearing superhero in this, in this sort of continuity. Is he? His, his, Mm. His identity is public knowledge and Sue as his wife, her identity is public knowledge. And we think they remark on the fact that they're, their flat, their apartment has like Kryptonian security technology, Thanagarian, yeah. Apocalyptian, and then I think someone says, and even the really crazy shit that Bruce invents and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so they live in like an impregnable fortress of a flat, basically, that you cannot get in if you're not supposed to get into, which makes how she was killed even more of a mystery because literally no one can figure it out can they they've got batman on the crime scene they've got uh, mr miracle on the crime scene they've got everyone who's everyone who's uh, got some detective skill or forensic skill who can add value and they're all coming up completely blank aren't they yeah Yeah. exactly and you know it's a big mystery if batman can't solve it if the world's greatest detective can't figure out who got to your security system you're in trouble exactly which obviously is what leads them to suspect light because he has that teleportation power so technically he could have teleported in there without having to trick the security and because he has that past grudge against um sue and the league then he would be the prime suspect so what we discover is obviously that the league decided because he was too dangerous and nothing might stop him trying it again going after sue again or i think he makes a remark when they've got him held down he says something like oh flash i can see under your costume there's a wedding ring on your finger there under your costume you know perhaps uh, you've got a wife at home maybe i'll pay her a visit next you know not the, at that point he knows who the flash is or who his wife is but obviously you know you worry it's about him finding it yeah. right through you doesn't it yeah he does yeah so they make they make the sort of ethically questionable decision to use a tanner's uh, magical powers to wipe light's mind and alter his personality um, which sort of stands against the league's ethical and moral stances, sort of, you know, untaintable, uncorruptible hero. So where do you stand on that? You know, there's, the whole, there's a whole moral debate in the book, isn't there? Like, yeah. were, they, were they right to do it? Were they wrong to do it? They, although they decided to do it, in between that group of six, six or seven heroes were there. You had Green Arrow, Black Canary, Green Lantern Flash, Hawkman and Zatanna. Uh, who were there and I think maybe the Atom as well. Yeah, and the Atom as well. And they decide, and they go with the majority vote that they're going to do it, but some of them are very much against it. And even, you know, there's some physical blows between them thrown because they don't agree with it, but ultimately the majority rules they do it. You know, where do you stand on that particular argument? Do you think they were right to do it? Is it, does it cross the line of what you'd, what you'd expect from a, you know, an upstanding moral superhero to do such a thing? Oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a tough it's one, a, isn't it? It's a tough one. <laughs> I can, I can understand why they thought it was a good idea. Yeah. But 
it just raises so many questions. Mm. I mean, they could have they could have made him worse mm. by changing his personality. There was no way to know what it would do. Yeah. Exactly. Taking, just just taking away that piece of memory could have you could almost rationalize that. Yeah. But as you it's just it just leads them down a path that just ultimately makes the whole situation so much worse. And it's almost even though they don't become villains, it's not like they all become supervillains based no. on it. It is like absolute power corrupts yeah. because suddenly it's like, actually we can, we can change the situation here. And it's that old thing of every, every villain is a hero of their own story. Mm-hmm. They think they're doing the right thing, but actually it's, it's not necessarily the right thing. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so difficult. It's so difficult it is, it is, isn't it? It's, it's interesting to see heroic characters making questionable or even bad decisions, isn't it? You don't always yes. tend, tend to see that and then having to live with that in secret for as long as they have because obviously you get the impression a few years have passed in between the two events and, you know, having to lie to Superman and Batman about it. and Exactly. Keeping that dark secret. And not only that, we discover that Batman actually stumbled across the scene um, as a sort of late arrival and they not only were doing that to light, they actually wiped Batman's memory of it as well. So... The fact that they've that was actually a shocker exactly so they've done it to one of their own as well as doing it to this despicable piece of crap villain who kind of deserves that and worse and deserves anything that comes to him the fact that they do it to one of their own as well really makes you think jesus christ this you know are they do are they doing the right thing should they have just you know tried to lock him up and throw away the key in some you know high-tech maximum security prison and just let him rot or you know were they right to do what they did and and then obviously they've i think they do cross the line by doing the same thing to batman don't they absolutely crosses the line and they allude to the fact that they've done it plenty of other times as well don't Mm. they Mm. because you get they get into that whole conversation of well you did this once is this the only time you did it and then it's like no um it slightly snowballed you can Mm. almost imagine it being like a kid in class who's done something wrong and they're like uh yeah sorry i did it once and then i did it again and again and again at which point kind of made me think because they they i think one of the bits of dialogue isn't it it's along the lines of something like well you know if a villain discovered what your secret identity was wouldn't you want to take that away from them yeah and yes but that still doesn't make it right it doesn't know but it's like it's like hobson's choice isn't it it's like you're stuck, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, you? yeah you are. You, if, you, if, you, if you do nothing, then it's likely to come back around another day, and then you'll, you know, something even, you know, someone could get killed next time, let alone what's happened to poor Sue. And then you think, God, shit, if only I'd taken that chance when I had it, none of this would have happened. But then if you do it, then you've got to live with that for the rest of your life and question, you know, constantly question your own morality. So you talk about between a rock and a hard place, you know? (laughs) Do you think Batman knew? (sighs) There's a line, isn't there, in the book where I think Green Arrow's talking to Flash, because let's not forget the Flash and the Green Lantern that were involved in this decision all these years ago are not the same Flash and the Green Lantern that are taking place, because this is your Barry Allen and your Hal Jordan Flash and Green Lantern. 
But in between this and the continuity at the time of identity crisis, both of them were dead. Barry had died yeah. during crisis for Earth. Obviously, we know they come back, but at this point in time, they hadn't yet been brought back from the dead. They were still dead in inverted commas because no one stays dead in comics. Nope. Um, no. <laughs> um, but at this point, they were gone, although Hal was a, a version of the Spectre at this time, as we see. Yeah, that was a book. surprise. I, didn't, I never knew that that happened. That's right, yeah. He'd, after he died and, and sort of he turned villainous and been infected by Parallax after his home city had been destroyed and went off the reservation um, and then was killed, yeah. And, and then obviously his soul sort of melded into that of uh, Spectre and that's the identity he took on for some time before eventually, like we say, being uh, reincarnated as the Hal Jordan we all know and love, yeah. So, yeah, they'd, uh, it's easy to forget that Barry and Hal were not around at this time. So it was your Wally West Flash and your Kyle Rayner Green Lantern at this at this point in time anyway. Yeah. So although, you know, we see them very complicit in that decision, they're not around to live with the consequences because they're they're dead, for want yeah. of a better word. So we get a new Flash and Green Lantern who uh who stumble across this through basically eavesdropping in on the conversation and then become part of it. Um, a generation on because they're they know and they although flash keeps threatening every five minutes to run he, you know when he doesn't get his own way he just goes right i'm going to run off and tell bruce and then they go oh well, you know hold on hold on let's talk this out so they're both this although they weren't involved at the time they're complicit in it now they end up complicit in it yeah, yeah because they know the story and they're choosing to keep that story dead and buried as well um so to answer your question which i completely sort of went the other way with <laughs> does bruce know um there is a line where someone says Bruce knows what he wants to know. And yes, that's exactly the line. And Superman hears what he wants to hear because let's not forget he can, can hear everything, can't he? Yeah. You can't have a private conversation from Superman because he can hear literally anything, anywhere, at any time. So I think and that, moral, that moral ambiguity is almost worse. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I think it's a case of don't speak, don't tell, or, you know, hear no evil, yeah. see no evil, speak no evil kind of thing, isn't it? I think maybe they know what are uh, trying to keep the status quo, keep the peace, and, you know, maybe begrudgingly recognise that there was a greater good involved. I don't know. Do you think? Yeah, I think so, because the last thing you want was would be for the League to completely implode because of mm. the actions of a small group of them. And yeah. then you end up completely unprotected in yeah. the event that Darkseid suddenly shows up or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last yeah, thing you want is a league that's not functioning when, when they're all needed to work together. Exactly, yeah. Because although they had, like we've said, they had sort of everyone's best interests at heart, they have it, you know, they have lied to their teammates who they're supposed to trust with their lives. You know, they've lied to their faces all these years and, you know, done something questionable. So yeah, it would it would rip the team apart. So yeah, maybe there is an element of that, but I like the fact that it's kept deliberately amb- ambiguous, isn't it? You don't yes. quite, there's no right or wrong answer to that question. Does he know? Does he not know? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but either way, you know, there's, I think there's just a lid being kept on events, you know? I think that's um, some of the best way of storytelling as mm. well, because they're not handing it to you on a plate. No. And that's my kind of my least favorite thing yeah. is where you've got somebody that's literally, treating the audience or the reader if they're as if they're they're ignorant of what's going on and so they're just telling you everything you don't you don't get that here you get a story that unfolds 
without giving you all the pieces until you actually need them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I like that. It, it lets you make your own conclusions before completely yeah. pulling the rug out from under you when you just when <laughs> yes. you think you've just when you think you've got all the answers. Uh, to quote Rowdy Roddy Piper, he changes the questions, you know? So it's like, <laughs> just when you think you know where you're going with this story, you go somewhere else. But like you said, that's good. I, I like that. It's, you know, come to your own, you know, make your own interpretation. And, you know, that's that's a great thing about great art. You can, yeah. can think, you know, you and I could look at the same thing and one of us could go, well, I think it's this. And then you could go, well, I think it's that. And neither of us are right, neither of us are wrong. It's all down to interpretation you know absolutely yeah exactly it's that's what it's all about and you know that's one of the things that appeals to me about this book there's so many sub layers and and shade there's a lot of shades of gray in this book as well isn't there rather than black and white hell of a lot of shades there are definitely and i think that for me personally that's why i tend to lean towards dc Mm. more than marvel i don't feel like marvel has well often has shades of gray mm. i feel like their stories are very much a kind of good guys versus bad guys mm. and don't get me wrong that absolutely works for them that is their aesthetic and they do it brilliantly oh, yes. and that's why their their books are what they are yeah. whereas dc is just more my stick because i like to know what's going on in the gray area yeah i do that's yeah that's kind of my sensibility as well i mean don't get me wrong i love marvel they're fantastic but DC is more my thing for practically the same reason. It's just, I think it just gives you just a little bit more meat on the bone, I would say, yeah. in terms of storytelling and depth. But um, that's not, yeah, it's not to knock anything that Marvel do or have done. I, you know, no, I, not at I, all. I equally enjoy reading Marvel as well and reading and watching Marvel. Fantastic. But this is... Uh, that's actually, do you know what? I think that that is also where... Um, Warner Brothers, in some respects, kind of didn't grasp yeah. how a DC films universe should work. Yeah, because you hear that wall of sound from the general audience that is, "We want to see your characters. We love Marvel," mm. and you try and recreate that, but it just doesn't work because that's not the universe that these characters exist in. Yeah, absolutely. What yeah. you you would never get a Batman that would fit organically into something like a like an infinity war endgame type of story without having to flex his character in a way that makes it slightly less recognizable mm. yeah i completely agree definitely yeah it's, again um, not knocking what marvel do they are excellent at what they do oh yeah absolutely absolutely you can't knock it really it's monumental achievement what they've done and absolutely if we're talking films anyways yes monumental achievement what they've done it's it's yet to be bettered in my opinion but i just absolutely. think yeah I think um, I think Warner Brothers have started to correct the ship at least, and I think they seem to what you see that they've got planned and the things that they announce in. I think they're going to correct where the mistakes they've made and learn from them. Yeah, hopefully, I anyway. completely agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the think, next few years should be very interesting. I think. I hope so. I really, really, really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, but uh, no, I think the signs are encouraging. I think you know 
patience will be rewarded and i think the next two to three years of what dc have got coming up um not just on the cinema screen but the hbo max stuff as well that you know stuff they've announced and stuff they've yet to announce that people keep speculating yeah. about i think there's i think we're going to be in for a treat over the next few years you know but then marvel too with the disney plus shows that they've got in the pipeline i mean you know i think i'm really to- looking forward to seeing one division um yeah me too which i realized my strange slightly twisted accent from coming from the midlands and then living in wales for several years sounds like i'm saying one division when i'm not i am saying <laughs> one division um it just looks so interesting from the trailer yeah oh yes yeah, uh, great and that's what i that's the point i'm making it's i think they'll take a lot more chances with that kind of stuff because they're not having to put, hope it, so. put it on the big screen and be slated to make hundreds of millions if not a billion dollars with it being on a smaller screen and and you know not having to make that mega box at the box office they can you know tell a more nuanced story and obviously with it being a tv show there's a longer runtime it's not your two-hour film so you know if it's uh, like one division i think they're saying is six episodes so i presume i think so i presume that's six hour long episodes well that's three times the length of a standard marvel film or standard anything film so you know you can tell the story in a more measured way and with more depth without having to sort of cram it all into two hours and get from a to b to c in that time so yeah no i think um on their side as well i think you're going to be in for a lot of treats as well so it's um it's a good time to be a fan that's for sure oh totally it really it really really is yeah oh it is i think we're living in a golden age really i mean you know i can't imagine what myself as a you know i think of my kids now and how they're spoiled with all this content and i think back to when i was that age and had basically nothing <laughs> and just and just think god if i'd have had those these films and these tv shows when i was their age honestly i'd have you would have had to have peeled me off the ceiling i think i'd have been sort of jumping for joy so much so um yeah, yeah we are living in a in a highly uh, brilliant age for that kind of thing as well as much as we're living in a shitty age for many things in this world <laughs> at the moment at least for sort of comic book media and entertainment we're living in a in a golden age so at least the small crumbs of comfort there for everyone who's uh, <laughs> uh, depre- depressed at the um, the state of the world at the moment well, that's how i arrived at reading this book i yeah. mean i was telling you this the other day wasn't i i so i was i was always a paper comic book subscriber so i started my subscriptions back in 2006 i think it was and you know it was paper that was all i would read i was not interested in reading digital comic books never really picked up any Uh, i think the first real thing that i read digitally was the um, was dc's digital first um batman 66 you know when they got that when they got the license back and they did uh they did a uh it was their weirdly animated digital book so instead of just navigating through as you tapped on panels stuff would kind of move and flash around and stuff like that mm. i'm pretty sure that was the first digital book that i read and then um i finally went pretty much fully digital i've completely forgotten why i started this story already um <laughs> i then oh yeah that was where okay i know where i'm going with this yeah i then uh went fully digital about two years ago yeah. and as i was making that quite monumental decision to be fair because i i when i <laughs> so i subscribed to forbidden planet when i uh other subscribers are available when i emailed them to say look i'm i'm going digital i need to stop my subscription i think i actually apologized to them <laughs> for the fact that i was having to move away from the physical copies but i just don't have the space to be able to do that yeah 
But when I did that, I uh, immediately realized just how often there are incredible sales on comiXology for graphic novels. And in fact, today, even though I've already read them, and I'm pretty sure I own them in hard copy as well, I just picked up the digital versions of all the Batman Eternal um, ones. Uh, So just added those to the collection. But over the kind of couple of years leading up to where we are now, I just kept buying graphic novels when they were on sale. Some stuff that I'd read and lots of stuff that I hadn't read. Yeah. So as we as we hit kind of pandemic lockdown, I suddenly realized I was I was genuinely ticking towards a hundred books sitting in my account that I had not read. <laughs> including this one. Yeah. So I'm now quite pleased to say that I am I am down at the, about twenty books to go mark at this point. That's some heavy reading. I'm quite impressed. Yeah, I tend to at the weekend just sit and read yeah. book after book after book. Nothing wrong with that. Nope, absolutely not. So that was, yeah, that was what landed me at uh, our whole conversation where I said, oh my God, I've just read Identity Crisis and this book is amazing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely it is. Yeah, yeah. One thing I do like about this book as well, which um, I've yet to touch on, is the fact that, you know, it's a lengthy book and there's so much going on. It's an incredibly gripping story, but there's so little action in it, isn't there? Um there's yeah. one brilliant fight, which we'll mention very shortly. But generally, you know, in a huge crossover book like this featuring every man and his dog, there tends to be, you know, several standout, you know, spandex-clad smackdowns in there and, you know, fights yeah. for the ages. Whereas this is, there's obviously the wonderful Deathstroke fight aside, which I want to talk about. There's very little actual combat or action in this isn't there it's all conversational stuff you know looking back at the past and dealing with the consequences of your actions um but yeah hardly hardly any fighting isn't there you you are absolutely right there is very few set pieces and it's really nice that it's Mm. able to do that especially given when you think about the kind of time that this book was coming out it was the beginning of that kind of resurgence of the comic book movie, yeah. which is very much hinged on action set pieces. Yeah. So people turning to comic books around that time were probably looking for that kind of action. Yeah. So if you went into this kind of expecting that, you were going to get quite a shock. But when it does do action, it does it very well, and it does it for the right reasons, mm. rather than just saying, well, we've got all these people together in one book, so we're obviously going to make a fight because you're going to want to see that. Yeah, I like oh, that yeah. they were brave with the choice of not just throwing action at people for the sake of knowing that that will get people to, to buy it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And what little action there is in there serves the story rather than yeah. it just, like you said, just being thrown in there for the sake of spectacle and, you know, giving everyone sort of some eye candy of these wonderful yeah. fight scenes and set pieces that we get. Um, but obviously the centerpiece fight uh, for want of a better word in this is the wonderful uh, section where obviously hot on the trail of the aforementioned dr light um this group of heroes that were sort of involved in the cover-up go to obviously track him down and hire he's hired deathstroke hasn't he as basically his sort of hired muscle to protect him in the event of such an occasion and an interesting choice i thought i yeah. almost for a second when i first read it thought would he actually say yes to that? And I thought if the money was right, yeah, he probably would. Mm. Well, I suppose he would, yeah, because like you said, he's all about, you know, it's an occupation. And yeah. probably over the years, he's had that many run-ins with these various 
um, heroes anyway that the chance to maybe go up against them again was probably That's true. Probably quite enticing for a man yeah, like Slade Wilson, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I mean, what a fight it is that it's literally one man against seven, and that one man comfortably wins the fight. And he, it's brilliant the way it describes his sort of thought process and his methodology it's not just um endless panels of him you know beating the crap out of them and, and you just see him being an awesome you know fighter and specimen that he is you actually get to see it explained as to why he does what he does to each person and what he's thinking is yeah. the way he does it it's genius writing in collaboration with the art isn't it it is. It deconstructs it. I mean, even from the cover of that issue as well, yeah. it's, uh, it's like you don't even get to see his face. It's just part of his torso and his leg on the side of the frame with his bloodied sword yeah. across the members of the Justice League. So well, who have you got? You've got Hawkman, uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Flash, Black Canary, and Zatanna. Yeah. And it, they just you can just tell from the way that Deathstroke is drawn on that cover that it's kind of a, uh-oh, we are in trouble sort of moment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah, it's phenomenal. It deconstructs it so well throughout the rest of that issue, though. As you say, just looking at how he takes down each one of them and calculates each move. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's told through, I think it's Green Arrow is the narrator. Yeah, Green Arrow, yeah. Yeah, through the fight, and he basically just explains every part of what he does. And it's great, you know, it puts you right in the mindset of the character, Slade Wilson, and makes you understand why he is such a, a deadly combatant as opposed to you know just being a badass ninja and (laughs) heightened intellect and everything it it explains why he takes a particular action against a particular member and and he easily until the end where he sort of loses his focus a bit and takes a risk and ends up with a an arrow in his already bad eye Um, yes which I always wondered why he didn't put it in the good eye. That would have been quite good. I wondered um, that as well. Yeah, yeah. Unless he, you know. He says, what is it? He says, hey, Slade, watch the birdie. Yeah. And Jump sh- in and then says, I know he's blind in that eye. I also know how much an arrow there hurts. Yeah, exactly. Um, unless I suppose, you know, he's, after all, he's a, a heroic character, isn't he? So I didn't want to actually blind the man. And That's leave, true. And yeah. leave him, and leave him permanently blind in both eyes so i suppose there was a degree of mercy involved but um yeah it is it is a great fight it's just it's one of my all i would say it's one of my all-time favorite fight scenes in a comic book really because it's it's small scale it's just in a enclosed space and on a on a, in a back street but it's it literally just is showcases what a what a fighter he is. And, and I love the quote where he says he fights just like Bruce. Um, everything, yes. cal- everything calculated. Past that. Yeah. Which is great, you know, and, and you know, wets the appetite. Maybe you think, Oh, maybe later in the book we'll get to, well, we don't, but you think, Oh, maybe later no. in the book we'll get to see Br- that fight Slade and Bruce. I mean, obviously we know we've, we've seen that fight many times over the years. Um, and what a treat that is every time, but just to, you know, that obviously little enticing prospect where you think, God, you know, even Batman, if he went up against this guy, would he win? Would he not? You know? Um, so it's, it, it is a brilliant fight scene, isn't it? Yeah. And you, you just hit on it right there, but I think all of that narration from Green Arrow does yeah. just per- purposefully illustrate how formidable he is. I think if you weren't familiar with that character before it, mm. by the end of that issue, you, you know exactly what you're up against if you if you go up against Deathstroke. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not going to uh, come out of it well, that's for sure. Um, 
unless you're nope. super, Superman or something like that. But then again, I'm sure he's got a plan for Superman as well in his in his back pocket, ready to um, find a way to beat Superman too. Um, that I'd like to see. Yeah, I would actually. I'm sure. I'm sure that it's been depicted. I'm sure it must have happened somewhere. Sure, yeah, exactly. I'm sure an aficionado who's listening will be able to tell us. But I'm sure there's been a Deathstroke versus Superman fight. And whilst on paper you would think, unless there's some kryptonite involved, it wouldn't even Deathstroke wouldn't be able to harm Superman. But I'm sure there's something involved that would, you know, some magically blessed samurai sword or something like that so that it, <laughs> you could slice him up with or something. But um, yeah, that's uh, that is something I'd like to see, and um, I'll, again, I'll defer to uh, the aforementioned Steve Ray and see if he can rec- <laughs> if he can recommend a book yeah. that um, he'll have a recommendation. Such, oh yeah, something that will have that in, and um, yeah, I'd like to see that. Yeah, um, one of the things I want to touch on then before we sort of delve too far towards the end is it's interesting that this book actually something you don't often see in a, a comic a comic book, a superhero comic book at least. It actually shows you the domestic lives of the heroes as well, doesn't it? As opposed yeah. to showing them in costume and on duty, for want of a better word. It actually shows you their home lives. You you know, you get to see Superman at home with Lois. You see um, Oliver Queen at home with his son. You see Tim Drake at home with his dad before, obviously, what happens happens to his dad. So you, you get to see both sides of the superhero life, don't you? It's, um, in fact, this book is kind of about that, isn't it? It's about the consequences of trying to have um, a quote-unquote normal life and be a superhero and the risks that come with it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it is. You often hear them sort of say, you know, I, I need to the reason that I have an, a secret identity and an alter ego is because I need to protect my loved ones. Mm. But you don't often maybe explore some of the psychology behind that or look yeah. at what that home life is like to better understand why they behave the way they do. And I guess it's something that you see more often these days in, in maybe TV and film, mm. but to see it in a comic book was really refreshing. Mm. Yeah, I think so. It's a nice twist. It, kind of shows you the not less glamorous side of being a, a costume uh uber it just it humanizes them yeah yeah even to someone like superman yeah it shows you what they have to lose doesn't it um yeah by, by doing what they do and obviously you know as we've discussed some of them do lose in quite tragic circumstances but i suppose it high it just puts it front and center that you know if you're going to choose this way of life then there's always someone who if, if not you then the people you love and care about are going to pay the price one day or one day or another, it's going to come back to haunt you. Yeah. It's, it's important for this story to be able to show that as well. Mm. And it's not the kind of those scenes of like Clark and Lois at home together or, um, you know, Sue and, and Ralph mm. and how they got together. They're not necessarily that important in the bigger stories, like the no. crisis on infinite earth style stories. It's it, there's a, there's a place a time and place for it. And this is absolutely that time and place. And I don't think the story would function anywhere near as well if you didn't have that context to show you why they fight for what they fight for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, you know, when we learn who killed Sue, it kind of puts that all under a different context because one of the people that you're fighting for and one of the people that you're trying to protect is ultimately turns out to be the villain of the piece um you know in the sort of guise of uh, ray palmer's ex-wife jean jean loring um and 
it's kind of weird that the whole book's been about, you know, this is the life we lead and these are the people we protect and this is why we do it. Yet, shit, right at the end here, you know, the curtains draw, uh, you know, the curtains pull back and here's your villain. And the whole reason we do what we do is, is come back to haunt us because this woman who's, I mean, she, her and Ray are divorced at this point and you, you, you learn that she instigated the divorce. It wasn't like he dumped her and she's been sort of, you know, a, a jilted lover trying to win a man back. Yeah. It's her choice not to be with him, but yet she somehow twisted her own psyche and in some twisted attempt to woo Ray back, she wanted to, well, actually you learn she, I don't know whether I believe her or not, but she didn't actually want to kill Sue, did she? It just went horribly, Supposedly. horribly, horribly wrong, didn't it? Um, she went there with the intention of just causing her some harm and then yeah. accidentally killed her. Yeah, exactly. She went there to sort of rough her up and, you know, cause some, stir up some shit, um, but not actually kill her. But obviously, you know, not being a, trained in the, uh, fully in the art of um, shrinking down to subatomic level like her ex-husband, it all went tits up. And uh, unfortunately, poor, poor Sue perished. But it's a weird one, isn't it? Um, although we, we said, obviously, we never saw it coming. Do you, I don't know what's, what's what I'm looking for. Do you actually buy that she would do such a thing? You know, and she learned she just wanted to do it because when you do such a thing to the loved one of a superhero, they say, who benefits? Because the whole thing is, who benefits from this murder? That's the whole story, isn't it? For all throughout the book. Yeah. Is, what's the motivation? Who, who, who would want to kill Sue? And in doing so, what did they gain from it? Because there's always got to be a reason for it. Beyond revenge and that's why they went after light at the start and we know it's not him so who would else would have a cause to murder sue because she would never hurt a fly so what what benefit do you get and you sort of learn in her twisted way and she's right in a way that you know when you harm someone's um other half or a member of the family they pull together don't they you know you, if you're if you're a superhero with a wife or a superhero with a husband or a, um, a, a, a child, you pull them closer to you, don't you? When you find out that someone else has been killed or, or threatened, yeah. Um, so that's how you benefit. You know, you get more. I want to say more love, but I suppose just more protection and and more closeness from the person. You know, from the the superhero or heroine that you're with. So you can understand why she did it, but I don't know. Do you buy that she would do such a thing? It just seems, it seems so far out of left field at the end for her to have. It does. I mean, I, I, I like it. I, I love the, the twist element, like we said, and we both said neither of us even remotely saw it coming. Cause you get that deliberate red herring where she stages someone trying to attack, attack her. Doesn't she, where she, the hand yes. is on the back of the door. So you, immediately sort of cross her for suspects because you think christ they've killed sue now they're after her and then you get sort of the threatening letter to lois as well so you think oh they're targeting uh, super spouses <laughs> for want of a better yes way. so you don't even consider that yeah. she would do such thing but then when you reveal it it's her it's like do i buy that she would even do such a thing you know or is she it just does, is she just it seems pretty extreme doesn't it yeah yeah because uh so she says um 
I just missed you, Ray. I really missed you. Yeah. I wasn't trying to kill her, I swear. I just wanted to knock her out. Yeah. Just to, you know, scare everyone a bit. I figured when word got out, Ralph would come running, Clark mm. would race to Lois, and maybe if I was lucky, I know it sounds stupid and childish, but I just thought, and then Ray says, you thought I'd come running back. And she's like, you did, Ray, you did. Mm. And well, She's I, right, yeah, he I did. Yeah. He did. So in, in theory, what she, she, was, she was right, but... Yeah. I know what you mean, because even when you get to the end of the issue before the reveal, mm. it still makes you think, oh my God, it was Ray. Yes. Yeah. At first you meant so, to think that, aren't you? Right up until he says to her, oh my God, did you kill Sue? Mm. I, I thought we were trying to say that Ray had been, I don't know, doubled and replaced, or mm. it was somebody else pretending to be Ray. Mm. It was the whole thing with the tiny footprints on the brain. I was like, oh, yes. shit, it's Ray. Why, yeah. did, why did Ray do that? Yeah. And then it was, it was a bit like, okay, she's a bit nuts. She's a <laughs> bit of a bunny, bunny boiler. Um, I think the only thing that really makes me struggle with it is the extreme lengths. So the kind of the simple idea of I want to get my super back. So I was going to rough up another super's wife because mm. that might get them all to come running back to their partners. That's maybe not two out there yeah the fact that she then took the suit and shrunk herself down and squashed her brain takes it a little bit too far mm. and then the the hiring someone to to go at her to cover it up mm. is like another little step further but then hiring captain boomerang to take out tim drake's dad yeah yeah well she didn't think, time, she didn't in a twisted i think she says she didn't actually think that boomerang would would do succeed it. because she gave she planted the gun for jack drake to deal with boomerang, yes. which, which he does because he kills boomerang doesn't he but obviously we you know he dies too in the in the struggle he gets a boomerang in the chest but she deliberately hired like paid low level to get low level and boomerang in this is depicted as like a fat fat old wasted drunk isn't he <laughs> i was I, I think i even did i even message you while i was reading it to say yes. what's with this version of boomerang yeah what happened yeah, yeah it's not this um, isn't jay courtney <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's not even that guy who played him in the flash um <laughs> no but, um no it's it's uh, an interesting one but yeah she didn't again she didn't think it through and think that po there was any possibility because like jackson x sort of adventurer or kind of man of action, isn't he? So she thought, well, if I hire some bum villain to go and do him in at his home, if I give him a gun, then Jack will shoot him dead before. That was heartbreaking as well, those scenes. Yeah, it is, yeah. As, as he's uh, on, the, on comms with Barbara, who's yeah. then talking to, to Tim in the Batmobile and saying, like, get home to your dad. And Bruce is kind of like, we're going to get you there. We're going to get there on time. We're gonna, it's going to be fine. Mm. Wow, that's that's one of the most emotional moments in the whole book, I think. It is, isn't it? Because he's he's trying to run up the stairs to the flat to get there in time, like shedding the Robin costume as he goes. And then when he gets there, obviously, you know, he finds his dad Too late. dead with a boomerang in his chest. And then you get that wonderful image of him sort of being held by Batman on the floor, like crestfallen, yeah. Bat and Batman's holding the... Because he'll have picked up off, presumably picked up behind him the Robin costume. Because you, the costume, yeah. Because you want to leave it around for people to go, oh shit, Tim Drake left that. Does that mean Tim Drake's Robin? So obviously he would have picked it up behind, so he's holding it, and that's quite an image of him holding like Tim Drake in yeah, plain clothes, yet he's holding the Robin costume, and this poor boy's dad's 
just died and then you know bruce is i think bruce says oh not again kind of thing because obviously he's been there before with dick's parents and obviously then obviously uh, the death of jason as well so he's seen too many robins you know suffer yeah exactly so it's it is a really hard-hitting scene isn't it yeah we jumped ahead of that but yeah it's it's full of your actual question though um i I just yeah i i i think i'm with you i think it is it's so out of left field yeah that she did it but it i just think her some of the some of the things that she did and her method was maybe just a little bit too out of scale for it to be wholly believable at the end it is yeah because you like you i like it but I yeah. just think it's, I think it, I think she just, in her crazy, she went a little bit too far. Always, sorry, not she, she's not a real person. It's a comic book. It's her characterization <laughs> yeah. is written just a little bit too far for it to fully land for me as completely believable. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think, well, if she wanted her ex-husband back that badly, surely you can go about it in a more conventional manner. Like, exactly. Just kind of say, him. you know, yeah, woo him, talk to him, say, look, can we give it another go? You know, how about yeah. that? Rather than staging this elaborate Machiavellian plot where, you know, granted she didn't mean to kill Sue, but, you know, to go in there and cause Sue such uh, emotional trauma and distress, you know, yeah. why go to such elaborate lengths just to win your ex-husband back when, you know, there's a much more simple and direct route to do such a thing. It's, but it's, um, it, it kind of... It kind of works within the context. It so, does. Like you said, oh, it does. Yeah. So, she's so not seemingly out of nowhere. It's like, oh, okay. But, you know, I, 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 think it, I think it works in the context of the story, but there's a bit of a, there's a leap of faith involved, isn't there? Definitely. Yeah. There's a panel. Um, so in my version and the digital version, it's on page 207, which is kind of as she's unraveling the story to Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's... She says, it was just like the old days, wasn't it? Kind of referring to them being back together. And he says, oh God, you're insane. Mm. But the panel where she says, it was like the old days, she's actually drawn in quite a kind of classic way that you would see the Joker drawn. So like the panel is close up on her face with her hands clutching her cheeks. And she's got the slightly maniacal grin. Mm. And I mean, if you were to give her red lips and a white face, you, that would just be the Joker. Yeah. Completely. I just love that that. panel for that parallel. It is, isn't it? It, it, Because she looks kind of vaguely sane, physically speaking, all through that exchange. But then there's just that one, like you said, there's that one panel where she looks absolutely fucking completely batshit nuts. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's strikingly effective. Yeah. Like you said, that is pure joke. It's almost like she's holding her face into a smile isn't she yeah she's actually pushing her mouth back and forcing a smile because you think why would earth would you be smiling when you You can sort of imagine her if that was a if that was a scene in a film or something she'd be a bit like "Ah, i guess i thought it was going to be a really good idea at the time yeah Ah, whoops Excellent. Before she gets yeah. carted off to the funny farm. Yeah, and now she's in Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane under severe med- yes, under severe medication uh, <laughs> for the um, foreseeable future. I mean, God, you know, and you see the price that Ray has to pay because obviously yeah. Hot completely blames himself for the 
you know, I mean, he, he technically isn't to blame, but you can understand, I think if I was him, I would blame myself as well if it was me in that I think situation. the actions he takes in his last scene where he just kind of disappears is yeah. exactly what, that feels perfectly in tone with the story and where his character is emotionally at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You would just sort of walk away from the life, wouldn't you, and disappear for a while to try and put your head around it and, you know, figure out. And, the, you know, you, the guilt you would feel next time you were in Ralph's company, you know, that the reason his wife's dead is she did it for you kind of thing, even though it's you can't be held to account because you can't be blamed for the actions of some psychopathic ex-wife. Yeah. It's on him, isn't it? In a way, in a, tw- in a roundabout way, it's on him. It's not on him, but it is on him. So you can yeah. understand why he would sort of just go and not come back for quite some time because I mean, God, you would, you couldn't even look anyone in the eye if that was you, would you? No, exactly. You would, you wouldn't be able to, you'd be mortified. Yeah. You would, you would feel, even if you, could rationalise in your head that it wasn't strictly your fault. Mm. I think you'd still feel like other people were looking at you like it was your fault, like you should have known. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, how long? How long were they married for? How long had they been together? I don't know. Is to be honest, is my honest answer. I'm not uh, that clued up on the the love history of. You would presume anybody looking at that relationship would be mm. kind of saying, "Surely you knew her long enough to know that she was, you know, not right." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would kind of you know as a sort of learned man of science which he is you would think he true would yeah understand the human condition or or maybe not because he's pure science isn't he i don't know but you just i suppose you just wouldn't see it coming would you at all to be honest with you because you know you, you well you just wouldn't would you sometimes um, you just don't see what's right there in front of your face no exactly yeah, Particularly so. if you don't if it's somebody that you love unconditionally and you mm. don't want to see it then yeah yeah absolutely and because you learn as well that their divorce and split was her thing rather than his so you kind of can sort of ascertain up to that point that he probably still would quite like to get back with her um yeah and you know he's kind of blinded by his own feelings isn't he i suppose i think you're right i think you're absolutely right yeah i would say so but yeah so yeah i can understand him sort of disappearing into the ether i would i would I would go running for the hills if, it, if that was me, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and it is a, it's an incredibly downbeat ending. But then there's that moment of the epilogue with Ralph sort of offers a, a crumb of comfort, doesn't he? Because Oliver says to him, because Oliver's obviously come back from the dead himself by at this point. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and, and obviously... <laughs> just choking on thin air but um, <laughs> and obviously we there's that scene where he sort of goes communicates with hal at hal's grave you know as hal is the, as the specter so oliver knows that there is life after death he's he's lived it he's experienced it so he says to Ralph at one point talk to her you know because i know she will listen to you i know because i've been there so you're not crazy if you start talking to her and treating her like she's in the room and that's what that epilogue is, isn't it? Ralph sort of, obviously he's, so he's put it behind him. I mean, how'd you put something like that behind you? But there's a smile back in his life. Isn't yeah. It? And he's gossiping away with, um, uh, Sue and telling her this really cheesy joke as if she's there, you know, and then obviously gets into the, the bed with the empty side where he, she would normally be and sort of, you know, bids a good night and turns a light off. And, you know, there's a, a crumb of comfort at the end of an incredibly dark book, isn't there? So I was slightly confused 
Yeah. And there's some context to this. The first, the first time I read the epilogue, bearing in mind the cat had jumped on me in the middle of the night and I just couldn't get back to sleep. So it was about four o'clock in the morning when I read it. And I kind of read it and put the book down and then thought to myself, is Ralph nuts? Does he not realize that she's dead? And then I went back when I was actually awake and had caffeine in my system and was like, okay, I get it. it this, it's like you say, it's the, it's the conversation between Oliver and, yeah. and Ralph suggesting that actually speaking of the cat, he's just running. It's like he knew I was talking about him. Um, <laughs> You know, he, he's talking to her as if she was there because that's some comfort. And then actually it made sense then. And it is it is a nice kind of shred of hope at the end of what is quite a, a difficult book. Yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. And it just shows, you know, there's a, I suppose there's a way forward for everyone who, you know, suffers unimaginable tragedy and grief. I suppose that's a nice thing to put in the end of this book of, book of complete darkness and horror <laughs> that, you know there's light at the end of the tunnel for every situation i suppose and i think um if memory serves me moving forward i think they did it in 52 um ralph and sue are reunited as ghosts uh, like ralph perishes and you know goes on i think he goes on some kind of odyssey in in 52 which was like a year-long book um it's a long time oh, wow so a long time since i've read it so anyone out there who who picks up on my mistakes forgive me but i, I think he goes on some kind of quest because he's convinced that there's a way to bring her back from the other side, but ends up going to the other side himself. And they're sort of reunited as detective ghosts kind of thing. Wow. But then I think they retconned that in the new 52 and brought, I think they brought them both back from the dead when they sort of reset the continuity then anyway. So it is what it is. We know comic book continuity gets reset and retconned every few years anyway. But yeah, I think for a reboot. Yeah, exactly. But I think there was a sort of, twist in the tail and sort of light happy light at the end of the tunnel that you know the ralph and sue story didn't end with that tragic end there was you know dare i say a happier end to their story so there was yeah it's about as happy as it could get for this book i think yeah exactly yeah um so yeah it wasn't quite oliver was right it didn't quite the story didn't quite end there but um yeah a nice sort of way to put a to put a button on the story i think really but um yeah, I think it's um, quite a satisfying... I don't any other way how it could end, to be fair. Yeah, exactly. Not with, that, yeah. not with the same kind of positive tone. Yeah, because there is no positivity to take out of it where someone's nearest and dearest has been killed. Not only yeah. her, but obviously Jack Drake as well. And f- uh, we completely forgot to mention Firestorm blowing up in the, uh, yes. in the sky as well. But again, we know he comes back, um, <laughs> <laughs> as does everybody. And I, I've said this a million times in other episodes of this show, comic book deaths for me, I, they don't carry any weight so much anymore because I always think, well, one day you'll be back, you know? Um, like, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah. It's, I find the same thing with memory loss. Right. Yeah. So like when, um, countless times it's happened to Bruce Wayne, but Mm. when he died and got thrown back to prehistoric times and traveled back to the present day and had no memory or when in Snyder's Scott Snyder's run, when he, after the uh, death of the family, when Joker and Batman had supposedly died at the bottom of the Batcave and there was, No, you get that you get that period afterwards where they maintain that the person doesn't know who they are mm. and it could be a vaguely interesting story but i just i find that really yeah it turns me off because you know at some point it's going to circle back and they're going to remember who they were 
In fact, yeah. I would say the the whole Rick Grayson saga that's been going on in Nightwing is probably one of the longest ones I can think of in the mm. time I've been reading comics. Yeah, the amount of time he was without his memory. And I for a long time I was reviewing that, but I actually stopped because I was just complaining every month that I was like, it's trying to tell an interesting story mm. and it's not badly written, but I can't get into it because I know that it's a waste of time and we're treading water to the point where he regains his memory. Yeah. And actually I did eat my words slightly and towards the end, it, it did become a really interesting story with the whole dichotomy between the fact that he had some of Dick Grayson's memories in his head mm. as well as, fake memories and the yeah. life that he built as Rick Grayson. But I just, yeah, there are certain things like deaths and losing memory that I do think are, they end up becoming a bit of a, a waste of time just because you know that they will eventually be undone. Yeah. Yeah. You can't become fully emotionally invested in them because like you say, I mean, perfect example, like you've just mentioned there, Dick Grayson, well now his memories are back, aren't they? And yes. for all intents and purposes, he's back to where he was before all of that. Exactly. He's, he's now back hundred percent as Nightwing and uh, everybody's happy again where that particular storyline is concerned. So yeah, I mean, you know, they killed off Alfred last year, but yeah, anyone who thinks they'll never see Alfred again is deluded because he'll be back. You don't kill off a character like that who's been around since the very earliest earliest of days and never bring them back it, yeah. it just it just can't happen in some way shape or form be it a, a magical event or a, a crisis that reboots the timeline or or something <laughs> he'll be back uh, in what in, i feel like we're building to a universe to reset with um, death metal anyway yeah Exactly, the fact yeah. that, although it's it's not a crisis, but they need to harness crisis energy to fix it and fix the universe, just makes me think, okay, we're gonna we're gonna write a couple of wrongs at some point when yeah. that story comes to an end. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it it'll happen. There's always that's the great thing about comic books. You can always undo whatever you've done if you if you come up with something and the you know the the fan base and the sort of readership don't particularly take too kindly to it there's always a backdoor way of undoing it and going back to and then you can redo it again in another few years time yeah exactly yeah if you piss people off you can always undo it you're never beholden to what you've done it's you know so i suppose that's the way of it. it's been that way since the very start and it'll never change so yeah it, it is why don't you look at someone is. like um look at jason todd yeah. i mean people didn't like that well okay people thought he was a complete clone of Dick Grayson, which he was. And then you had crisis and then he was a little shit and then they killed him and actually killing him off was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to that character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, because they brought him back in a different guise to how he was pre-deaf, didn't they? So I suppose it works in that way. Um, so they reinvented the character by, by that particular method, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And yeah. It, it was just, it was a perfect situation for him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, with others, it's, you know, whoever they kill with. Uh, virtually everyone's died at some point <laughs> in comics. It's, it's hard to think of. I think a, you're right. Yeah, a character that's a long-standing character, at least. It's been around for a good number of years. You know, if you delve into the biography, you'll find at some point they were killed <laughs> and, uh, and came back. Um, or you thought they were dead and they weren't. But that's just a familiar trope. It'll never change. So I just think it's been done that much that, you could literally the next issue of batman could be someone walking up to bruce wayne and putting a bullet straight through his eyes and, yeah. uh, and i would go oh, oh okay oh, okay well he'll be back you know you've, you've literally blown his brains out but he'll be back yeah you know? so it's it kind of loses its uh, its luster with me 
Um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, but uh, nevertheless, um, I think in the book we've just uh, been pontificating about, I think it's um, very expertly handled and, you know... It is. It the really, the really deaths in this do hit home because I think there's a more... It's all about consequences, isn't it? And, you know, what you were saying earlier about, you know, sort of consequences not being strong in Marvel, uh, the film world and what have you. I think consequences in this book are, are plain and simple there yes. for all to see, you know, not just in deaths, but in, you know, consequences of your past actions. So, yeah, I think it's a really worthy read for sure. Absolutely. It's just, yeah, I it, it's one that I will go back to over and over again now, having finally made my way to it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, so what we'll do now is we, as we do at the end of every uh, discussion of, of this show, we do our end scores. We give it a score out of five, of, you know, one being the absolute worst piece of dross you've ever read, <laughs> up to five being an absolute masterpiece. I always let the guest have the final word. So I'll quickly give my score. I'm going to give it, I think I'm going to give it five. I think I have to. I think practically everything on this one hits a home run for me. The murder mystery elements misdirect the reader really well and make the ending a more of a gut punch though as we've said it's a bit of a leap of faith i, I do quite like it uh, presenting heroes as flawed people that make the wrong choices sometimes is bold and refreshing and to have such an all-involved story without resorting to a universe spanning crisis situation is really well done um, and it all adds up to a really good package so for me i've got to give it yeah i've got to give it five out of five how about you neil I think I agree with you on all those points. I would, I would also go with the five. I, I thought that the the whole thing of it maybe going a little bit too far with the reveal made me think, would I give it a four? But it's one thing to kind of talk about it with hindsight and talk about what might be flawed. But actually, in reading it, I was completely sucked in by the story from start to finish, yeah. and there was there was at no point while I was reading it, that I wasn't completely gripped by the whole thing. So, it, yeah, it earns top marks on that one. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a universal slam dunk. As, uh, it completely high, is. High, high marks on that one. Fantastic. Well, Neil, all I can say is thank you so much for giving up your time and your insight. It's been a fascinating um, discussion. So I thank you so much for that. As always, anyone who comes on this show, you must uh, plug away. So let uh, everyone know where they can find Get Your Comic On, the various places they can find it, and um, how they can hit you guys up on social media. So the floor is yours, sir. Okay, okay. So if you would like to read uh, my and other and, and yours and other uh, writers' musings on comics and film and TV, then uh, our website is www.getyourcomicon.co.uk. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, all at Get Your Comic Con. Yeah. Same, we're, we're pretty much the same wherever you find us. Uh, also on SoundCloud for the podcast. You can pick that up on uh, also on pretty, basically every major podcast platform. So we release new episodes roughly every fortnight. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, we're on. We're everywhere that you can possibly try and find us. We are there. If you can't find us, let me know and I will make sure that you can find us. <laughs> if people want to find me on social media, then I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram as at Neil Vag. I One thing that I find really important uh, with this whole thing is because just me, I don't ever want... I mean, I have no, I have no interest in being like a a social media personality. <laughs> so when it comes to the social media, forget your Comic Con. That is the voice of all of us as a group. 
So I try not to have the voice of those social media accounts be my voice. So I'm trying to use my own Twitter and Instagram more to be my voice within things. And then if if anybody would like to find my wonderful Boy Wonder Martin, then he's on uh, Twitter and Instagram as at Boy Wonder 1989. But as he often says on our podcast, he uh, he is a nurse by trade. So he talks a lot about medical stuff <laughs> and not a lot about comics when it comes mm-hmm. to, uh, to social media. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, everyone's heard that. So you've got no excuse now. I'm sure most people have already, but by all means, go to those sites and subscribe to the podcast. It's a fantastic listen. Um, Neil and Martin put a great show together every fortnight ish as you say ish, yeah. <laughs> yes um so check that out by all means uh if you want to hit me up on twitter you can find me at maxi burn which is spelled m-a-x-y-b-y-r-n-e if you go there there's um, links to the various sites i write for uh, the aforementioned getty comic con of course uh, dc world fantastic universes dark night news uh, go on any of those you can uh, see what that's all about and of course uh, the feed comics in motion where this show is going out to uh, everyone which if you're listening you'll already know that but obviously there's all the wonderful shows that are part of that network now there's five or six uh, maybe even seven now uh, fantastic shows on there all variety of stuff so whatever your interest i'm sure you'll find something on there that's to your taste there's um, something for everyone now it really is a great uh, thing to be a, a part of with all the other guys so uh, it's growing means, a lot that network it's the work that yeah. they're doing is very cool it is yeah it is it's um, it's a nice thing to be a part of and uh, uh, thanks to uh, to Chris and Dave for uh, inviting me to be a, a small part of uh, what is uh, turning into uh, quite the thing. So yeah, it's a, a yeah. Big pleasure and a privilege to be part of it. And it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you on, Neil. So uh, hopefully you've uh, enjoyed it enough to come on again in the near future, hopefully. Yes, absolutely. We still need to talk about the last night and um, yes. everything else that has possibly crossed my mind that we could possibly talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, I'd, I'd be well up for that. So uh, thank you so much, Neil. It's been <clears throat> excuse me, a real privilege and a real pleasure and a real treat to have you on. So thanks very it's much for great. that. Thank you very much for inviting yeah. me. It's my pleasure. And uh, to everyone out there, please take care of yourselves in these times. Just look out for yourselves and each other and be nice to everyone. And Hopefully soon we'll, uh, the world will be a better place all around for everyone and uh, we can all start uh, living and enjoying life a little bit more than we are now. So uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you again down the road on the next episode. Bye for now. Bye.